Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Today, we're joined by Deputy World News Editor Hayes Brown. Hayes, what's up? Hey, oh, you know, just the world collapsing around <laughs> us, the usual. Eh, typical for a Thursday. This week, we're talking about Trump's deal making, the latest on DACA and the DREAM Act, and also what is going on with Russia. We'll be joined by foreign affairs correspondent John Hudson and political reporter Tarini Party. All right, joining us now is Tarini. Hi, Kate. How and are you? Hayes. Hayes? No. Hi, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Hayes is here, too. Hi. So a lot has happened in the last 10 hours. Also, Many just things. just so everyone knows, it is Thursday morning at 11 o'clock, because really a lot could change in the time between now and when you listen to this. Yeah, if you're off of Twitter for five minutes, the world changes, as we as we know yeah. these days. So last night, Donald Trump went to dinner, or he had Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer over for dinner at the White House. He served them Chinese food and chocolate pie. As one does at the White House. <laughs> Beautiful <laughs> mix. And... They leave and Pelosi and Schumer put out a statement that says we've agreed to the basic framework to protect young undocumented immigrants who who came over when they were children, um, who had been protected under this Obama era program that Trump ended. Anyway, they say they've agreed to a general deal. What's up? So it was a very confusing time period last night uh, and so uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer put out a statement said they'd come to this deal under which they would protect DACA program recipients you know keep them from being deported uh, while also negotiating some border security measures but not the wall and this statement was then sort of kind of rebutted, refuted by Mark Short, the legislative director uh, for the White House and uh, the press secretary. Um, They said that, you know, the wall still was being considered. It was it was sort of vague. It wasn't clear if the wall was going to be part of this deal or not. If they were saying the same thing, it kind of sounded like they were all saying the same thing, but also still fighting with each other. (laughs) So uh, um, there was a lot of confusion. uh, And this morning we woke up to tweets from uh, the president himself saying that uh, the wall is going to happen. And now I think the understanding is that the wall is not going to be part of this deal, but that it will be part of the future. And Trump seems to think that Democrats said that they were not going to block funding for the wall in the future if they got the first deal. Did he say that? He just said that this morning. Oh. Yeah. I mean, oh. <laughs> I just read a pool report that said that. So. Interesting. The wall and border security have kind of, like for a long time, have sort of been like mixed together. But it does seem like now, like Democrats are making a very clear line between there's the wall mm-hmm. and then there's border security. And we can agree to border security. They spend billions of dollars on border security mm-hmm. already now, currently. So them agreeing to more border security doesn't like. Yeah. And if, if you go back to the Gang of Eight comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed the Senate, uh, border security was a part of it. And that was something that got you know Republicans on board with immigration reform as a whole. So border security has always been one of those things that I mean, a lot of Repu- uh, a lot of Democrats also support. But they know even those who don't necessarily support it, they know they have to 
put it out there to get what they want for whether it's dreamers or some other type of immigration reform. I don't know. He's like watching it from afar. You're in New York. So we're, far away. So, so far away. Far. We're in D.C. Like, did, like, are you, are you, are you? It's, it's it, all crazy because like you said earlier, if you look away from Twitter for five minutes and everything is bonkers. I had the temerity to put my phone down for several hours last night. And so I Rude. woke up to all of this news. Yeah. And one thing that I'm really curious about is that uh, the president is saying that him and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, who, you know, are necessary to actually do anything in Congress, are all on the same page. Um, but I made the mistake of blinking again. I haven't seen have Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan come out and confirm that they have talked to the president about this yet. So Trump has said that he called them this morning from Air Force One and they have discussed this. However, uh, we have not heard from leadership, Republican leadership yet, uh, on whether or not they're on board with this. Trump seems to think they are. And the important thing to remember here is that in the House for Paul Ryan, when he became speaker, uh, he promised that there would be no immigration-related bill brought to the House floor unless the majority of the majority caucus, so the majority of Republicans, supported that measure. So, you know, they need, my math is bad, 120. <laughs> <laughs> I was they, told there would be no math. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot. They need a lot of Republicans. They need a lot of Republicans. <laughs> uh, to get on board. Uh, with this, with whatever deal making happens, and uh, in the House, there are a lot of sort of immigration hardliners who are not going to be, uh, are they're not going to want any sort of wiggle room on this. And in theory, Ryan would need a lot of Democrats to be able to pass anything like this, similar to what maybe happened with you know the debt ceiling deal that they came up with last week. Two weeks ago, whatever that was. Yeah, Steve, the, re- the, the reaction from um, folks like Steve King last night was uh, swift and displeased. Steve King is a representative from Iowa who uh, has a tendency to say some incredibly racist things and cantaloupe calves. Very, very, very yeah. against immigration of this kind. Yeah, he pointed out that if this deal does happen, the base will revolt. And the people that who elected Donald Trump elected him because of the wall. You know, if you go to any Trump rally, build that wall, still a chant that, that you know, uh, comes up all the time. And those people, that base will feel like they have been ignored and Trump is now working with Democrats. So, you know, the Ann Coulter, Laura Ingram, the conservative um, radio talk show hosts, whoever they are, <laughs> um, <laughs> have already come out and said how much they hate this deal, how bad this will be for Trump. Um, but, you know, when you look at polling, there is pretty widespread support for protecting these dreamers. So it's unclear if Trump's core base, you know, will uh, support this. They likely won't, but he will probably pick up support from, you know, the more sort of average traditional Republicans on this. And then uh, Fox News host Sean Hannity, who has obviously been one of the most vocal Trump supporters, tweets, well, Mitch, great job. You failed so miserably with health care and excessive expectations. Now at POTUS has to deal with Dem leaders. Hashtag look what you made me do. Exactly. Just like one of those moments where you look at it and you're like, is there anything that Donald Trump could do? that would make 
Sean Hannity turn against him? Seems uh, like no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's not just Sean Hannity. It is, um, you know, after the the last deal with the Democrats, with you know the budget, the debt ceiling deal that Trump did with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, a lot of conservatives in the House blamed Paul Ryan. They said that Paul Ryan didn't have a conservative option. So it, it seems that we're seeing this over and over again, where these conservatives and or hardcore Trump supporters are blaming Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. A, because it's pretty easy to do that because they've been doing that for (laughs) years. And B, because the base loves that. Mitch McConnell especially has been unpopular for years. And so continuing to blame him is uh, something that actually does get the base riled up. And maybe they will, Trump supporters will buy that over, you know, blaming Trump. Tarini, question for you. How is it looking on the other side of the aisle? Uh, you see Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi cutting the de- these deals with Trump. Many, you know, Democrats, leftist liberals out there are of the mind, you know, the White House is filled with racists. How are the members of the Democratic caucus reacting to the idea that, oh, I guess we are making deals with the Trump White House now? Yeah, so it's been somewhat divided. I mean, the majority of the caucus, at least as of, you know, a few days ago, was still somewhat supportive of this because as long as they were getting what they wanted, as long as they were, you know, winning uh, in these deals, um, they were pretty supportive uh, of it. But there is a very vocal part of the Democratic caucus, especially in the House, uh, that has always been sort of wary of Nancy Pelosi. And uh, they've always felt that she doesn't consult them when she makes these deals. Um, A lot of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, uh, they've been working for a while on the DACA issue, of course. They want to be more involved in this. And then Nancy Pelosi is going around, uh, they think, you know, without their input, uh, without, you know, taking their feedback and just going to Trump and making deals with him. Uh, We had one member last week who compared um, trusting Trump and working with him to, you know, dancing with the devil uh, was the quote. And so there is definitely that sentiment of why are we working with this man who we've called a racist? And there's a sense of why are we normalizing this presidency when we've spent months attacking him and saying this is not normal? I guess the last question I want to ask you is one of sort of the drivers behind ending DACA was Stephen Miller, who we've discussed on the show before, who is a former aide to now Attorney General Jeff Sessions, very, you know, against illegal immigration, has called, called this all amnesty, and very proudly wanting to end it. So what what happens to to Stephen Miller and and Jeff Sessions, who are in this administration and sort of fighting to to really end DACA. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because it seems like the president, in his mind, has separated, um, you know, undocumented immigrants and, uh, you know, the whole crackdown on illegal immigration versus the DACA issue. He seems to have separated that in his mind because he said a few times how, um, you know, he uh, wants to handle that issue with heart. He feels bad. It's not their fault. So in his head, he separated the two. But Stephen, people like Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions, they don't see the two issues as separately. Um, But, you know, Stephen Miller did get one 
somewhat of a win by um, convincing the president to end the DACA program. Uh, Jeff Sessions got his moment in in glory by going out and uh, announcing that the program was ending, something he's you know wanted to do since the program started. So from now on, I mean, we know Jeff Sessions' clout in the administration, especially with the president himself, has been fading over the last few months. With Miller, the interesting thing has been that he's sort of been able to morph or um, kind of fit into different cliques within the, within the White House, even though, I, you know, based on ideology, he might not agree with some of the other aides. He's been able to still uh, be on good terms with them. So I don't think that this is going to be necessarily bad for him. He's going to take it personally, and he's going to continue to make the case that the, this is not what the base wants, um, especially with Steve Bannon now not in the White House. I think he sees himself as the, the person within the White House who knows how the base thinks and what they want. So he's going to continue to make that case. But if this deal does go through, it's definitely going to show that maybe he does not have as much power as he once did or thinks he does. All right, Trini, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And now back to Russia. Joining us is foreign affairs correspondent John Hudson. How are you, John? Doing well, doing great. Yeah, you had a big, uh, big Russia scoop this week. Uh, your story uh, talked about Russia reaching out to the Trump administration, asking for a full, just diplomatic reset. Can you walk us through a little bit about what uh, what this document says, why it's a big deal, and then who confirmed it in the end? Yeah, yeah. So I've got it right here. Um, yeah. It's a it's sort of a detailed list uh, filled with bullet points of when the Russians would like specific sort of bilateral meetings between their American counterparts to happen. Uh, and what is pretty amazing about this proposal that the Russians gave to the Trump administration in March is that it is a full-scale and total rapprochement and an <laughs> opening of channels across the military, uh, across di- diplomatic channels, and, and really intelligence channels as well. And so I, after I got this, I, I thought that it was, you know, oh, it looks like they really wanted to move quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, I wasn't sure, so I, I t- got some longtime Russia experts to look at this proposal. And I was just asking them, please don't tell anyone else because I'm working on this big <laughs> story and I don't don't leak it to anybody. And I've worked with some of them before, so they were cool with that. And very quickly, there was a consensus among these longtime Russia hands, some of them who worked in previous administrations in top Russia posts, that this was extremely quickly. Uh, to put it in, you know, high school terms, uh, Putin wanted to go to third base on the first day. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. I did not think that that's where you were going with that. Well, you never know. You but it makes so much sense. I now have an image in my head I never yeah, asked for. He wasn't even just yawning and putting his arm around the shoulder. Yeah. Uh, he was going fast and dirty real quick. Real, just so fast and furious. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. You published this document, and then 
it's re- like, did you get confirmation from the State Department that this was so, the real deal? Uh, so I was, I came into this uh, very confident in the source that provided the document to me. And I also went to many of the agencies involved. You know, I went to FBI, White House, State Department, CIA, and, and, and talked to all of them. And especially in the conversations with the White House and at the State Department, no one was challenging the authenticity of the document. But uh, at, the, at the same time, uh, they were not willing to go on record by name and say, yes, this is accurate. And, and to be honest, that's pretty normal diplomatic behavior. If a foreign government gives you a proposal, you're not going to immediately talk to a journalist about it. It's respect for the confidentiality of diplomatic channels. Unusually, though, Putin's spokesman, after we published the story, confirmed it and said, yes, we sent new proposals. Uh, and so that had- They're so helpful. Yeah, exactly. And that had the uncomfortable uh, aspect of making the Kremlin more transparent than the U.S. State Department. That's wild. So, so one of the things that was notable about this document that you got was um, just the amount of, so no hard feelings, right, that was going on there. Did the Russians actually seem to think that uh, the Trump administration would- just agree to be like, yeah, no, Ukraine, Syria, whatever. Let's just do all of these friendly things together. It it does appear, and and it's a great question because it's surprising that they thought that they would be able to get this kind of a deal. It does appear that they basically took Trump at his word that he said time and time again, wouldn't it be great if we got along with Russia? And it's not crazy for Russia to think that hey, well, this was basically the first-term Obama administration's view of getting along with Russia, even though a million things have happened between 2009 and 2017. Ukraine crisis, Syria, the asylum of Edward Snowden, those are in reality what have brought and really plunged U.S.-Russia relations. And so it is pretty wild to think that we'd be able to go back to the same place, given all of those things, which caused a lot of heartburn. Uh, but they they took Trump as an outsider at his word, and you know they tried to make the proposal fly. And this was a sincere and real proposal. It's an authentic document, and it's been confirmed it sincere, by the Russian though? government. This is also the same country that did a, did a hefty amount of work in, in like trying to influence the election. In various ways, uh, hacked several, you know, major political parties. Can we call it sincere, or do they just think that Trump would be like, yeah, no, sure, sounds good? Well, I'm not. What I'm not saying is, I don't think they were willing to change their policies to make them any more favorable towards the United States. Right. But I do think it's sincere in the fact that they have always treasured these diplomatic military channels because it shows a very strong Moscow going toe-to-toe with the United States on the international stage. And it's sort of Putin's way to reclaim uh, the Soviet Union's glory. Because in reality, Russia is not a superpower. It's a, it's a regional power that can spoil a lot of things across the globe that uh, the United States is trying to achieve. Uh, but it's not a superpower. And the, at least these diplomatic meetings or high-profile summits uh, give the appearance of that. Uh, and, and so they've consistently prized that and cherished that. And so 
I, I do think that that reflects a sincere desire. It, it's just extremely bold of them to think that within a month of you know Trump taking office, some of these things would start coming into place. It's bold of them, but is there any indication that any anything could happen from the administration in this direction? Yeah, so there was a a really amazing test case uh, that happened deep into this uh, proposal. There is a plan to suggest a cyber working group between the United States and Russia. And if you remember right after Trump and Putin met in Hamburg, Trump tweeted out, working with Putin on a (laughs) cybersecurity working group. (laughs) And as soon as that tweet went out, Republicans went crazy, and so did the rest of the foreign policy establishment. This government that tampered with our elections, with a cyber component involved, is going to be some sort of cyber partner? That is madness. Right. Uh, that was the sort of predominant conventional opinion at the time. And with it, very rapidly, Trump turned around. I said we're talking about. It. I didn't say it was going to happen. <laughs> right. And and this is it's important to note that. When that tweet went out, Secretary Tillerson gave a press conference following the Putin meeting saying, yeah, we're working on establishing a cyber unit. That has completely fallen by the wayside. But you can see the genesis of that in this proposal that came out in March. So it is true that the vast majority of proposed meetings in this document have not happened. But we at least have seen attempts at making some of them happen. And we've seen in real time how controversial some of these would be if they were to be advanced and implemented. So one of the things that strikes me, though, is just how many of the proposals in the document like kind of mirror the Obama administration, at least, at least the early Obama administration's desire to like find areas of cooperation where we can work with Russia. In your story, you mentioned uh, special consultations on the war in Afghanistan, the Iran nuclear deal, and efforts to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. All those things all really are areas where the U.S. and Russia's interests align. I, I guess my question to you then, John, is... Um, Do you think that uh, any of these things that the U.S. actually does want have a chance of moving forward or all of it still stalled until uh, Russia changes its mind about Ukraine and Syria? I think some of that depends on when the Trump administration makes up its own mind what its policies are on some of these situations. What is the Trump administration's policy in Syria? If it is hey, you know, you could never trust the rebels from the beginning. We just need a strong man to take over. Then clearly U.S.-Russian interests are aligning quite well. And because of events on the ground, you know, we've seen Assad uh, consolidate power in ways that he hasn't before. So um, in, in that respect, yes. In other respects, I think a lot of foreign policy experts say that Russia actually doesn't have a lot in common with the United States on some of these issues and it is going to continue uh, to play a spoiler. Uh, the destabilization of Ukraine is actually a policy for, for Russia and uh, it doesn't want to see a strong Western-oriented, Western-trading Ukraine and it'll do anything it can to stop that. And, and, and this was, you know, what former Secretary of State John Kerry got so much grief about by sort of continuing to sort of extend an olive branch when people didn't think there was an olive branch uh, to be extended. All right. John Hudson, thanks so much for 
being with us. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. All right, Hayes, thanks as always for joining me and filling in for, for Charlie while he's on vacation this week. Glad to be here and do it. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer, Eleanor Kagan, and Alex Laughlin. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Film. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at Hayes Brown. 